Sex desire is the most powerful of human desires. When driven by this desire, men develop keenness of imagination, courage, willpower, persistence, and creative ability unknown to them at other times. So strong and impelling is the desire for sexual contact that men freely run the risk of life and reputation to indulge in. When harnessed and redirected along other lines, this motivating force maintains all of its attributes of keenness of imagination, courage, etc., which may be used as powerful creative forces in literature, art, or in any other profession or calling, including, of course, the accumulation of riches. Napoleon Hill. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I am super glad that you're here with us today because I am here with the most amazing guest, Andrew. Andrew, thank you for being here with me today. Thanks for having me on, Michelle. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I am as excited as everybody else to be able to pick your brain. <laughs> oh, that was a Freudian slip right off the bat. That so <laughs> if it makes you feel better, if you go on my scheduler, you can schedule a meeting with me called a pick my brain session. Oh, nice. There you go. <laughs> Well, and well, now we got a double for you. There you Reuse go. Reuse your content. That's awesome. <laughs> so give us a 5,000 foot view of who you are and what you're working on right now. Well, my, my background is global trade, but we are a global marketing and sales consultancy. We, we help companies go back to their core, turn off all of those expensive tactics that aren't working for them and build a core strategy based on who their customer is what the customer wants, needs, desires, and how you as a business can differentiate in ways that actually matter to that customer. Nice. We, well, now you're just talking dirty to me because I mean, strategy and, <laughs> and client's yeah. ideal journey. This, yeah. this, is, this is our mojo. This is what we love to talk about. Yeah. And we're going to talk about it on a whole new level because I think people um, get tuned out a little too early going, oh yeah, yeah, I know who my client is. And they really either don't or they forgot or there's a bunch of other things going on. When you're talking international trade, I'm assuming that there's a lot more to it than just going, oh, who's my avatar kind of thing. So yeah. let's start with that because uh, that to me is just super fun. So when you're working with somebody, especially internationally, what, what are some of the key things that you're looking for in an ideal client and their ideal journey? Yeah, our, our common, most common client is typically someone who's heard of the accomplishments that we've had with other clients and, and wants to join the party. But really, when, when you look at that client, it's usually somebody who is stuck, they've been trying to grow for a period of time, can't quite understand, or they have a new disruptive tech, some sort of new idea that they think the market needs, and they need help to, to get the position and the message and understand the customer base. And then the last area that, that we have are folks that are successful in the market and they want to innovate. And the current team that they have is so focused on what they do that they need outside eyes to really look at how they can expand into new places that they don't necessarily understand. Nice. I love that. And it becomes so paramount to me, even when people are a bricks and mortar company and they're going online, understanding the online sales world is a complete 180 from a bricks and mortar conversation. In bricks and mortar, you have to build it so that people can see it so that they come. And in an online business, it's like, if you do that, that's a recipe for disaster. Don't ever do that. Sell it before you make it and see if it works and then go yeah. build it. And for people to be able to wrap their head around that transition, 
becomes fantastic. And, and you can think about it, you know, if you were going to open up a retail, say you're going to just open up a, a, a new restaurant um, and you're going to do a brick and mortar restaurant, you're going to want a location where people can actually see you and drive by and get curious. It's one of the many things you need to do. Same guy opens <clears throat> this new restaurant in the back of an industrial park with no, no traffic. That's the online restaurant. And how, how do you get people to know you're in the back of that industrial park? And how do you get people to get excited enough to want to go through an industrial park to eat what you got? Well, absolutely. And if done right, there's, there's actually one in Calgary. Uh, it was a big yellow bus. And it was in the middle of an industrial park. It mm -hmm. just parked there. All the locals knew that it was there and it was awesome. But when the tourists found out that it was there, they would, it was a destination mm -hmm. bus stop because this guy made wicked burgers. <laughs> they were massively insane and actually really good. So it was, to me, as more than word of mouth, it was being able to take it up a notch from mm -hmm. what you're used to. Yeah, and it's an interesting concept when you, when you consider just talking about that. Imagine you're, you're looking in a high traffic retail area, expecting foot traffic to be your customer base you pay a massive premium for that real estate. So if you've got a, a thousand square foot establishment at a high traffic place, you could be paying in, in, in this region of the country, eight, $10,000 a month for that rent. Now, what would happen if you built the same spot a little off the beaten path for 2000 and use that difference as your budget to excite people and turn it into a destination? So all of those things are part of strategy. And the challenge goes back to the first comment that we made. If you don't know your customer, most businesses, when we talk to them and start talking about the customer, you, you're talking to a business owner, you're talking to, to, to executives in a business, and as they're describing their customer, they're actually looking in a mirror. And the first lesson is, no, 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 you're not your customer. If you, if you opened up a music store, would you only sell the music you like? Or would you want to know what, what your customers like to listen to? So, so that's always the first step. And I, I like to make up statistics with so 92.3% fake number <laughs> of our customers that we work with have no idea who their customer really is. Oh, absolutely. And, and we call that mirror marketing. If you're mm -hmm. looking in the mirror and you're deciding that that's who you're marketing to, you're <laughs> mm -hmm. when you're gone before you're gone, because more than likely, no matter whether it's a service or otherwise, one, your client's not as competent as you are. They mm -hmm. don't know what you know. They don't speak the same language you speak. They, there's so many things that if you're selling to yourself, you're doomed in your marketing because you're not hitting their pain points. You're not getting to what they need. You're not satisfying the, the mojo that they're looking for. Absolutely. Whether it's pleasure or pain, Absolutely. you're missing it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and the second part of it is then um, most companies are out promoting positioning themselves in the very things that they're very proud of that they do that have almost no meaning to that customer. You know, you're, you're selling a car and you're talking about how the car has whatever the features of the car are, when the reality is the consumer of that car is going, I want to buy power. I want to buy a look that can get the opposite gender or the same gender, depending on, on preference, to go, oh yeah, that's, that's the person I want to meet. I want to buy a car that, that makes my family safe. Those are what the consumers are buying. And, and then you got the dealerships out there trying to sell horsepower and sell paint. And we make our cars out of metal and it doesn't mean anything. So well, yeah, it's like so, having a Volvo and Mercedes trying to market to the same audience. It's like, that is not Yeah. And you could market to the same audience if you knew what that audience was going to find special of what, what they were really looking for. 
you could sell a Mercedes on the same cell of the safety factor that a Volvo has, if you know that that's what the consumer space is looking for. You could expand your market that way. But the sell of a car based on what you like about cars, um, when your consumers aren't you, it, it, becomes, it becomes a fascinating mess. I particularly like Mercedes in that um, I find it fascinating in what I'm going to call third world countries, just because, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, they actually sell Mercedes as a cheap and durable work truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so the majority of the vehicles, the majority of the Mercedes that are sold are the big industrial, well, big for them, uh, industrial work trucks, whereas in North America, it's sold as a luxury vehicle. And the majority of what they're selling are their high-end uh, yeah. until recently when they came out with the B-Class. Well, but well, if it makes uh, you feel better, I, I can go on my rant about why I absolutely hate Mercedes. Yes, do. The worst, the worst, worst vehicle I ever owned, the worst, the worst dealer, dealership experiences I've ever <laughs> had in my life. Um, not to mention the fact that I was lied to about the, the Blue Tech diesel that they just lost the class action lawsuit. And it turned out that they did the same thing Volkswagen did, put a cheater in it. So they're selling you this highly... Uh, highly fuel efficient diesel vehicle that doesn't pollute uh, only when it's hooked up to be checked. It had a defeat oh. mechanism. So when you're doing the e-check, you know, the, the ecology check on the car, yep. it says that it's doing it. As soon as you unplug it, the level of pollution it puts out increased significantly. Oh, my, the, now my I friends, there's a difference between marketing and fulfillment. And if those two yep, don't match, yep. you I would right? never in my life do business with the company again. My, my favorite story, oh. talk about customer service. So I, I had this vehicle as a company car. It was given to me to, to, to drive. The company insisted that we drive that type of vehicle. And I called and said, it's, I, I need to get the oil change. How much is it? And the guy said, it's the regular price. And I said, well, I don't know the regular price. It's the first time I've owned one of your vehicles. How much? He said, $380. I said, $380 for an oil change. And the guy said, well, yeah. We also were going to check the level of the brake fluid. He went through all this, this normal safety stuff that every other brand does as a courtesy. And I said, all that you've just offered me is table stakes. Those are things that come with any oil change. It's a, a simple inspection. How do you justify $380 for oil change? And the response, I'll never forget. Well, you are a Mercedes owner, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. So is that synonymous with liking to be ripped off? Is that... <laughs> So because it gets, we're going to charge you more. But it gets us. better. The story gets better. So I said, well, that's great. I will take my car somewhere else and get the oil changed. He said, oh, but if you take it somewhere else to have it done, you well, won't be works. able to turn off the, the, the signal that tells you it's time for your oil change. And it'll be annoying to you. The only place that it, that can be done is here at Mercedes with our computer that we hook up and reprogram after we've done. And he wanted an affidavit that all of the other things on the check were done. And not just a list, not a receipt, an affidavit so that he could reset the computer. And I said, did you really just use the word affidavit? And he said, yes. I said, okay, we're done. So I went to a typical oil change place, cost me, I think it was $65 with the promotion. And I said to the guy, do you have the Mercedes computer to hook up so that we can reset the computer? He's a computer hit the button, push the button on the steering wheel, you go right into the programming, you reset it, you're done. That was my experience. Now, it's very, it's a fitting story for what we're talking about. You know, if, if you're a brand who assumes that your customer is that, 
imagine how many people don't buy or will never buy or be part of uh, your, your, your family of, of advocates for your brand. I am the opposite of an advocate for that brand. As a matter of fact, to turn me off, I'll never buy a German car. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, it was, that's, that's it, it, there's more stories to that. I, I had a blowout tire. They have a deal that the only place that has the tire for that vehicle is Mercedes. And they're like five, 400 and something dollars a tire. I mean, everything about the vehicle, even, even the way that they, you know, a diesel requires this, this fluid called, uh, was it blue? I can't think of the name of it. It's a, a fluid that you, that pings through the, the, the car. Um, blue def it's called so that it, it lowers the pollution that the car does most all diesel vehicles have it they've actually positioned it in such a way that if you buy the standard commercial stuff that's the same thing they sell you got to get a special funnel to use it so you have to buy these little one liter bottles from them you can go to any any place in town and buy five gallons of it five gallons of it for 15 14 dollars one liter from them is 30 <laughs> so i mean it's just one thing after another that makes you suspicious and not want to deal with the brand. Uh, yeah, especially yeah. when there's nothing special about it. I mean, I can yeah. see, I mean, good marketing will take something that's ordinary and, well, not even marketing, but good business will take something that's ordinary and make it ex exceptional and be able to charge more for it in order to increase the profit. I mean, that's just good business. You take raw meat and turn it into a sausage and, mm -hmm. you know, minimal effort in, but yep. high, higher profitability. But you don't want to kind of break the chain of what I'm going to call authenticity, because if the, in the end, the fulfillment's not there, you're totally screwing yourself. And yeah. that's it, not a good place to be always. <laughs> out, of, out of maybe the 12 to 14 contacts that I had, each one got worse. At the end of the lease, I wanted to make sure, because I was so suspicious of how I was going to be treated at the lease end that I talked to a buddy of mine who, who has a car dealership and had the car gone over by his people who prep cars for sale to make sure everything was perfect. And then they come out to do a pre-inspection and the guy went over it and he said, well, you don't have both key fobs. I said, oh no, I have the other one at home. I'll turn it in with the inspection. I mean, when I, when I turn the car in. So the day came to turn in the car, the car's in perfect shape. It's been cleaned. It's been, I, I had it so that I wouldn't end up with some sort of weird list of thousands of dollars of whatever. And I had both key fobs and I put them on the desk of the person at the dealership and said, can I have a statement that you've examined the car and there's no damage to the car? He goes, oh, we don't do that. I said, well, if I leave you today with the vehicle and somebody hits it in the parking lot, who's to say I didn't bring it in that way? And he said, well, that, we, we, we don't do that. That's not our policy. And I said, then I can't, I can't leave the car. Let me go out and I'm going to film around the car. Well, the manager came out and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm filming the car because your guy won't give me an inspection report. He's only going to give me an odometer reading. So he turned to the salesman and said, ah, if he's insisting, go ahead and give him the paper. It's a form in their system. He just had to hit a button, but they don't do it. Then he hands me a paper telling me that I'm going to have to pay an additional $300. And I said, why? Missing key fob. I said, sir, both key fobs are on the desk. And he said, I can only go by what the paperwork says, sir. <laughs> And it says you didn't have it at the inspection. Pretty sure so, your eyes are wide open there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then at the end, wow. after we got it all straightened out, they still tried to bill me for the extra key fob, which of course I had a photo of on the odometer statement. And But, you know, it's it, this is this an extreme example of how a prestigious brand can destroy itself by not properly understanding who their 
total customer base is. I imagine that the guy who's, who's you know, driving the $150,000 Mercedes and gets the black, you know, black glove treatment and the whole white glove treatment, whatever you want to call it, uh, isn't even aware of any of that. They get the bill, you pay it and you move on. And I get to drive down the street and impress the neighbors with my very, very expensive Mercedes. It's guys like me who typically don't want to be in a luxury brand that could be a Mercedes buyer, but they don't understand who their customer is. Yes. And I totally concurred that. I think what may have happened, and I'm just speculating, is that they decided that they needed to open up a market because it wasn't enough of the high end in North America anymore. They had to come down and compete, which mm -hmm. is when they started losing their profit margins and having to cut uh, costs. And to me, I think that's more hazardous to a brand to, to pivot like that. Mm -hmm. I have not seen it work with a whole lot of companies um, than it is to go into something completely different, like all of going into real estate. Had yep. they gone into real estate and bought out, you know, areas and built up really nice uh, dealerships mm -hmm. and sold them to Toyota or whatever and said, hey, we've got this, like just complete left field pivot yep. would have been more profitable for them than a, yep. than a slight pivot because it clearly cost them. Because I was just going by their old reputation. Yep. Uh, but to your point, I drove a friend of mine's for a while and I went like this really isn't mm -hmm. <laughs> I drive in Lincoln MKX because it had heaters in the back seat for my son and he could put his hockey bag in the back and it had the sunroof those those were my requirements and we ended up with the Lincoln and I love 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 her yeah. um there was, there was a lesson but, back in the 80s I don't remember the name of the vehicle but you know General Motors owned Pontiac Chevrolet Cadillac Oldsmobile all of these different these different brands well, they Cadillac grabbed it was a, it was something off of the Chevy platform and made this low-priced Cadillac that that was basically a, like a Buick or a Chevrolet with a Cadillac logo on it, and it didn't even look like a luxury car, and it became the joke. I mean, it it, it really damaged their brand back then that they had this non-Cadillac. It would be it would be like uh, if if. Bentley decided to come out with a, a Chevrolet Malibu with a Bentley logo on it. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm going to the extreme, wow. but again, <laughs> if you don't understand and you can't be everything to everybody in most businesses. Um, so, so from a marketing perspective, getting back to that strategy, knowing who that customer is. And the second part of after you know them, what are their pains, challenges, and desires that need to be solved that they want to be solved? And how do you differentiate? What do you do differently than all of the other alternative solutions out there that really matter to bring to bring that person not just into the customer frame, but also part of the advocates for your brand, which is the core of what we do at Fangled. It's nice. about converting everyone into an advocate for your brand, a voracious advocate, not just the people who do business with you. Nice. So how did you get into all of this? How did this become so your mojo? Oh, it's, it's, it's a, I'll give you the short version. So I, I, I was a kid that would look at the Atlas of the world back when they were paper, you know, mm -hmm. it hung up on the wall and look at the countries around the world and go, God, I wonder what that's like. And I was, I had the fortunate, uh, I spent all of my summers as a kid up on Manitoulin Island in Ontario in Canada. You've, you've been to Canada before, I think, right? Uh, once or twice, yeah. You've, you've heard of it? Yeah. So, and then, yeah. I, and then in high school, I know, and then in high school, uh, I was an exchange student. I lived in Sweden for a period of time and got the bug. So when I went to college, I went to study international trade 
and, and got my undergrad in basically international business administration was the title of the degree to discover that with a bachelor's degree, there were no jobs in the field and I would have to go back and get a master's. But the problem was back, back then, most people I knew with MBAs were unemployed. So it was a, the economy just wasn't, wasn't there. Um, so I went back to school and studied to, to psychology, thinking that I could create a different resume where I really understood the, the psychological background and understanding of consumers and, and worked actually as a therapist for a couple of years while um, I was building my, my business practice. And I studied um, uh, advanced uh, hypnosis. I was, I was one of the people who trained with uh, Richard Bandler and John Grinder in, in neurolinguistics back in the day. So it um, so created a very different outlook. Um, and was involved with the same exchange student program that, that I was with to help them redesign and build better uh, orientation programs for American students going abroad. So I was involved in, in doing these orientations and, and interesting things happened. The chaperones would come up from Central and South America and they were all like top executives looking to do more business in the US and I set my hook. So I started doing projects in Central America, in, in South America, in Ecuador, and Colombia, in these places. And before long, ended up on a 90-day engagement project in Brazil, where I was going to be for 90 days to, to work. That turned into 10 years. I lived there for 10 years. Nice. That, so I met my wife and my family. Uh, today, all was born in Brazil. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so I got to ask you at this point, so how many languages do you speak? Um, fluently English, Portuguese, Spanish. I can read and understand Italian, French, a little bit of Swedish. I used to be able to communicate in Mandarin, but I've, I've kind of lost it. Yeah, well, you know, I never had any, so the old, we won't the old noggin is a, the old <laughs> noggin's full. That's, that's my running joke at the end of the business day. I got to go home. Full? My, no, my, my brain's full. I got to go home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the eyes change color. It's time to go. So, so in, I happened to be in Brazil at exactly the right time. The market had been a closed market for years. They were under dictatorship. <laughs> they had President Collor who had been impeached, the new one, but the market was opening. So in the US, I was a guy that had some skills, but no, no different or better than anybody else. In Brazil, I had much more experience than anybody else. So I went from, by changing where I was on the globe, I went from being average guy to perceived expert and was able to get involved in all of these really interesting projects linking the Brazilian market to the rest of Latin America and to the US and Canada. And then from there, worked that business for about 10 years until I, I came back to the States to watch the economy crash again and went to work for uh, one of my biggest clients, ran their international division. And we, we took them from, they were doing about 3 million and I think it was 16 countries. In five years, we were doing 14.2 in 75 countries. Nice. But I was on the road, what, 220 days a year, 45 <laughs> countries every year. Oh my um, God. I could, wow. I, I got, I got so heavy. I could barely walk up a flight of stairs anymore. I weighed about 365 pounds oh. and said, I'm done. <laughs> and that's when I made the path back to, I took a position with, with a, a fortune 100 company business development just to get my health back. And then got my consulting business back, back up and running. Right. I love that. And well, I, and we've got to come back to it because I think there's huge opportunities happening right now, um, mm -hmm. particularly because of the enforcement of the pandemic. And, and just the world is becoming so much more internet. I mean, it was super international <laughs> two years ago, but it's becoming even more international. There's, there's a now, pandemic? No. I hadn't um, heard about it. Oh, They got these things going around. It started with a beer company, I think. Here's one. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> the fear of the beer. Um, but do tell us, give us an example of one of your Cinderella stories, somebody that you've been working with and uh, big success stories from the past. Yeah. There was a a company that we were we were doing business with that manufactured equipment for painting houses. It's in in we we call it airless sprayers. Um, they also have an industrial line, but in, in the US and in Canada, most painters have these airless sprayers so that when they're doing big painting jobs, they're instead of rolling it with a brush or roller, they, they spray, they create a big fan and they spray and they can, one machine does the work at 10. Well, in, in Brazil, it, or in the US and Canada, for example, those machines, anyone who owns one is looking to upgrade, do more. It's an awareness. People know that it exists if they're in that business and they're looking for more power or to expand their crew. In South America, they never heard of it. So, so all of the marketing literature, uh, everything that exists in the U.S. is about upgrade, doing more. None of it anymore is educational on how to get your first machine to speak of. So we're in a market and we're talking to Brazilian people in the paint contracting industry and they don't understand it. Their response is, it's bad. It's not useful. Brazilians with a brush and a roller can do everything. Labor's cheap. We don't want to know. And, and as we started to really dig into it's, it's a horrible product, we, we then had to dig deeper. Well, you're saying it's horrible because you've seen it work and it failed because the concept seems weird or because you're just, you don't know what it is and it, it sounds hokey. And we discovered that nobody even really knew how the machines work. So we had to completely restructure the materials to educate what's the benefit. In other words, this equipment doesn't have three beers at lunch and, and <laughs> it, it will not go on strike. It doesn't have, when, it, when he leaves the company, he's not going to sue you in labor court, which is a real problem. And by the way, you're going to be able to do 10 times the work with one guy. So we decided to do a demo. And there was a new supermarket being built and in, in Brazil because of security. They built these big walls. So when you show up at the supermarket, you go through a gate, you get a ticket, you park your car, and it's in a safe parking lot. Well, that wall needed to be painted. So we bid on the project as if we were contractors. And it was supposed to be a two week, they needed it done within two weeks and expected a crew of a certain amount, a certain number of gallons of paint to, to do it. Uh, we bid on it and we showed up with one guy with a cart with the machine on it and the sprayer. And on the first day we had the entire inside and outside primed and the first coat of paint. And the second day we, we, we completed the second coat of paint on the project and we were done. It was kind of like in the old, you hear the stories of the old West where they were having, should we have trains or it was the trains against the, the, the horse-drawn wagons and yep. the trains won? Well, we won. Well, then it was the paint companies started to listen to the message that we created for them, which was if you have customers of your paint that have this machine, they buy more paint. They get more jobs and they spend more money. So we partnered with the paint companies to create schools to teach people how to use the equipment for free. And if you took the course, you got a 10% discount on the equipment. So we went from a market that, that had sold a few pieces of equipment over the years to, I think it was 1.2 million in, in, in the second year in sales and continued to grow. Nice. So those are the kind of, kind of creative projects that from way back that, that we worked on. That's fantastic. And I got to ask you, when somebody when somebody scales out quickly, because I'm, I'm making a, a gross <laughs> cast, but having done years of uh, executive coaching, a lot of my clients were like, yeah, but if I grow that fast, I'm going to you know break the system. I can't keep up with it. Going from 
that to 1.2 million a year, like how did they adjust to the demand? Like well, the, the manufacturer itself had massive capacity available. Okay. So that, that part of it wasn't. The trick is the float because you're, you're, you're making a purchase that's coming by container. We, we gave up some of the profitability by air shipping pallets of goods rather than sea shipping so that there wouldn't be a delay in supply. So if you go out and you do a seminar and now 100 people want to buy your equipment, which wasn't the case, but I'm, I'm exaggerating, 100 people want to buy it, you got 20 on the shelf, you need to be able to get them there faster. So sometimes you can give up a little bit of margin to, to scale up and consider that a cost of, a cost of market entry. Well, there's, especially there's when if you do one strategies. at 100, you're going to do five at 100. <laughs> so if you lose your profitability on the first one, kind of makes up for the next four. Yeah, in the digital age where, where you're selling you know, access to software, scaling up is, is, is very different than when you're selling a physical manufactured product. Or but, services or, yeah. or- And the other challenge is to involve the experts who've done it before to know what's the mix that you need on the shelf. Really, what, what are people doing in this market that they might not be doing and otherwise, because there's a variety of different accessories that, that could be. Like, like for example, if, if in, in the US, and in Canada, we build with you know, stick walls and, and drywall. It's almost unheard of to build with drywall in South America. So having accessories that would be used for working with drywall uh, will sit on the shelf for a very long time. If you, so, so you really have to understand and do your in-depth research before you launch so that you have the right tool for that market. It's, uh, there's a company I worked with that's in the fastener industry. They, 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 they do all sorts of interesting things for construction fasteners. So like if you're doing a metal roof, they have all of those nails and things like that. And they were looking to expand out West. Well, when you get to Las Vegas, buildings there are built out of cement. So, so that uh, most of the product line that would work in say Missouri is useless there. They literally pour the slabs on the ground and stand them up. <laughs> so, so it's a completely different market. I, I've been I've been in meetings with folks from Europe that don't understand. They want our help to expand because they've got great coverage in certain parts of the U.S. and Canada, but they can't sell in these other regions. And and the example for Canada would be really you're not selling a lot in Yellowknife. I wonder why. <laughs> or here, you know, you're in the in the plains of uh, you know in Montana, you're not selling large quantities. I, is it possible that there's no people there? But but again, they didn't do their homework. They didn't do their research to really understand the the market they're playing in. Nice. So who would you say is your ideal client? Who do you love to serve and speak? We, we love people who, for, for up until maybe five years ago, the answer would have been anyone in the industrial space who's, who's manufacturing, distributing, or, or um, creating products for, for industrial manufacturers. But we've many of our clients that we've worked with over the years in that space have left and gone into consumer goods. And because of the work we did for them there, they've dragged us kicking and streaming into the consumer space. So now we're doing a lot of consumer, consumer product work and, and, and things like that. But it, again, it's a company that either has a, a disruptive, some sort of disruptive technology that they don't know how to bring to market, somebody who's stuck, they can't figure out why they can't grow, or they're de declining in sales in, in a competitive environment. And, and lastly, uh, a, a company that can't afford to have a full-time marketing executive and doesn't need one five days a week, we come in as the fractional chief marketing officer and give them executive level marketing talent on their team that they don't have to pay for five days a week. Um, the fractional, fractional marketing officer is probably the biggest growing area of our business. 
you know, it's if if you're a, a company in in within a certain bandwidth of, of dollars, if you have a an executive C level marketing person that you're paying that level of salary to, typically one day a week that guy's or that gal is really working, and the other four days they're bugging everybody in the office because they don't have anything else to do, <laughs> or they can't afford that guy, so they they hire a very qualified tactical marketing person without the strategic experience. And that he's sitting around at his desk playing with Photoshop and doing a bunch of things. But when it comes to really understanding how to position and market um, and create that core strategy of the business, doesn't have the skill set. So this gives the opportunity to, to have that level of, of, of executive there. And it also prevents you from getting stuck in the marketing agency trap, which is we'll sell you every tactic in the book until your money runs out uh, and put the project management fees on top to surprise you. And that isn't all agencies, but but it's not ours that, anyway. It's, that, it's every other one. It's every other one. <laughs> we, I, I would I would say you know if I was going to add a fourth to my my list of ideal customer, number four is people who've been burnt by agencies that say they're strategic, but really they're they're not. they're basing their they're basing their strategy for you on on which tactic can can empty your budget faster. Yeah. Oh, and oh, you're you're again. You're just talking dirty to me because this is <laughs> the bane of my existence. Well, and it's not really, I mean, it's it's the opportunity that we found in the industry, which is what made us successful because they're all doing, they're calling tactics a strategy. And it's like, okay, dude, that's not a strategy. That's a bunch of shit yeah. thrown on the wall that's going to yeah. cost you a ton of money. That's not going to get you any results. And nobody, excuse the expression, I'm going to drop the F-bomb. Nobody fucking knows because opinions are cheap. The only person's opinion that matters is your your clients while they're sending the money on you as soon as they make that dollar decision that's the opinion that matters but you don't know that until they spend it so quit asking for people's opinions it's irrelevant work on your strategies and you know Andrew's obviously freaking brilliant and has the ability and know how to be able to take this to a whole new level which I love I could spend I don't know that word you use could you define it for me which one's that Yeah, I, it, it, I've, I've sat in pitches where someone wanted me to listen because they were going to hire an agency and, and I wasn't. And the pitches, this was, this was, this was a real one. Guy mm-hmm. came in and he sat down and he said, well, we love what you guys do as a company. It's so impressive. I, I, I love the manufacturing space. You guys are incredible. And we can build you a website so friggin' cool. It'll make your eyes pop. We could probably drive 100,000 people to that site every day and generate leads like you've never seen before. We know we can grow your business. And we could probably get it done for less than 80 grand in terms of budget. That was the pitch. And the guy from the company said, that's really interesting. We make a very unique, a totally unique component that's used in the aerospace industry. And we know all 300 potential customers in the world who could buy our product. What am I going to do with that website and 100,000 people on it every day? What, what are we doing with those people? It's a perfect example. It, it, it's ridiculous. If, if I know the defined market of 300 people, how am I going to, going to get all 300 of those people to recognize that, that there's going to be romance between us and you, and we're going to make you all heroes with what we do and make you smile and feel good about doing business with us every day? How can I, how can I personally touch every 300 of you and, and, and make you swoon? 
that's the marketing strategy that you would want to build if you have that type of a, of a definitive mark. And then how do you become aware so that when business 301 opens, you're already at the door? That's, a, that's the strategy part of it. I love it. What, what, what strategy do you think we should implement? I think you should build a website. That'd be a great strategy. That's not strategy. Yeah, yeah. And the other and the other bit of advice that we always give is when you went to school and they told you about selling features and benefits, you should have plugged your ears because nobody sells features and benefits. You sell benefit and use the features to prove you're not lying. <laughs> That's it's it's all inverted in 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 the world today. And as soon as you start to invert it, you will see a difference in your business. I don't buy Absolutely. metal. I buy the thrill of the vehicle. Metal's a feature. It has air conditioning. Okay. But will it make me look cool to my friends? <laughs> yeah. that you are cool. So you're cool. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. So what are some of the stumbling blocks that somebody might be having right now? And they're thinking, oh my God, Andrew, I need you so bad. I've, I used to hear that. I've been married for too many years. <laughs> um, the, you, the, I need you. Yeah. I've yeah. heard that bullshit before. Um, <laughs> No, really, the, the, the stumbling block typically is that they're, they're, they're talking to the wrong people. They're, they're, yeah, but they're, how do you know when you're it, talking to the wrong people? Because they sound because, so savvy. They're, and they're like, oh, you can have a billion results. And, you know, you know you want a billion results. Typically, the, the, the first thing that you want to ask people is, can you tell me about what you've accomplished in the past? I don't want to know that you built a website for somebody. I want to know that you did work and this was the result. So in other words, you came into a company, they were at this level, we did this program with them, we implemented these things, and the result was that. If there's no result in the conversation, you're talking to the wrong people. The next part of it is, ask them questions at the end of the conversation about what you talked about during the conversation. Because then you'll know whether or not you're dealing with somebody who actually listens, or they're, they're spending all their time coming up with clever answers to what you're saying without listening to you. Because there is no such thing as a quality marketer who doesn't listen. <laughs> and and I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations where I'm hiring tactical people to implement things that we're doing. And they've already got a preconceived notion of what they want, didn't hear a thing I said. And, and I test them. I ask the questions back. Well, we talked about this. What did, what, well, I, I don't know. Well, that's because you weren't listening. So th those are the, you know, there's lots of ways to sort of understand and, and the other aspect of it is, you know, ask them what, what, what is, how, how do you define a customer? What is a different, well, you, you use this word, what do you mean by that? And make sure you're, they're not just bullshitting you. I, I sat in an interview once and, and this was when the internet was, was just beginning and SEO as, as an expression had, had just sort of been the buzzword. No one knew what mm -hmm. SEO was. And the guy mm -hmm. asked me in the interview, have, have you ever managed an SEO program? And I said, the only way to answer that would be to ask you, what do you mean by SEO? And he said, well, you don't know what it is? I said, I have an idea what I think it is, but I want to make sure I'm answering the question you're asking. And he said, SEO is, is making sure that people can get through the website when they're looking for a website. And I said, SEO stands for search engine optimization, which means you know, at that time, how, how we do the Google thing and how we, you know, from that end of it, getting people there, but there's so much more to it. I just want to make sure that you understand that, the, you know, at that time, SEO only meant just how you optimize the search engine itself 
And we were, we had all of these other things that we were doing for clients in the digital side. And, and the fact that I asked him to define it <laughs> proved to him that I was listening and also made sure that we were talking about the same thing. It's, it's Absolutely. Kind of, so I, I got to pick your brain on this because this is so mm-hmm. much fun. Most of the entrepreneurs that I find that are looking for solutions as to how to break through that stuckness, like they're at, they're at a glass mm-hmm. ceiling. They want to break through it. They don't know how to break through it. They hear all these stupid buzzwords. Like we need to do Facebook ads. We need to do SEO. We need yeah. to do this. It's like, oh my God, I want, I want to lose my mind. Who's your customer? What do they care about? What are their needs? And where are they? It most, you know, knowing your customers also knowing where you're going to reach. There's <laughs> there, you know, if you're, if you're selling bowling balls, where, where do people who own bowling balls, where are they? Not people who bowl. Maybe people who bowl might eventually buy a bowling ball. But if, if you're going to go into the business of selling bowling balls, the biggest group of people who buy them are people in bowling leagues, not people who show up at the bowling alley. So how, how are you going to, how are you going to reach those people where they are in, in the psycho, psychology world, the core philosophy of all the work that I've ever done is the same philosophy and business. How do you meet people at their model of the world and bring them towards sanity or towards a better model? And, and that's the key to marketing is who are they? What do they need? And where are they? So when you get there, you know what you're talking about. And, and that's the miss. Most companies that are stuck um, I'll give you a perfect example. So I was in the steel drum industry. <laughs> we did we did this great project for a company that, that had to grow to a certain level and, and eventually was sold, which was which was the goal. And everyone in the steel drum industry was going to trade shows for industrial packaging. Well, what goes on at an industrial packaging trade show? A bunch of people who you compete with, measuring their uh, protrusions to see who's is bigger. Um, and but the customers aren't there. There's a lot of that going on. <laughs> Yeah, but the customers aren't there. No. I said, we're not going to go to those shows. If it's up to me, we're going to go to a chemical show. You know why? Because chemical people buy drums. We're going to go to a coating show. Why? Coating people buy drums. We're going to go to uh, uh, beverage shows because beverage people buy drums. We want to go where the customers are, not where our competitors are. By the way, people, he's not talking about Jamaican steel drums. Just 55-gallon steel drums. By the way, <laughs> they make them in any size you want as long as 55 gallons. You could probably take a couple of, you know, sticks to them and makes music out of it, but it's not people. We, we had customers who bought them and banged the hell out of them to turn them into those steel drums. Those steel drums are actually made out of 55 gallons. That's how they began was on the, in the islands, all the freight that was going through, they figured out how to, how to create musical instruments out of the scrap material. Learn something new every day. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. Oh, well, I am fascinated. I have to have you on the show again, because we got to talk about exact examples and all sorts of fun. Sure. Sure. But I want to know right now is at what point in your life did you know that you were a special kind of crazy enough to think that you could become a successful entrepreneur? I was probably eight. (laughs) I was, I've always been interested. Even when I was a kid in school, I always had little business ideas. The first really successful business that I ran, I was in college and I got a hold of the list from a precarious source of every student on campus, their home address and their birthday. So 30 days, and this is back before, you know, anybody really had computers and otherwise, 30 days before we would send a letter to every parent. So if your birthday was in June, on May 1st, we would send a letter to your parents with a list of services in terms of getting a birthday cake to your kid at school. And we had to deal with the supermarket. We got 20% off on the cakes. 
<laughs> and we were send a check and we'll deliver a cake to your to your kid. And every oh month my God, we delivered, that's genius. Every month we delivered 10, 15 cakes. And we were, you know, we were taking, I think the cake was costing us at that time was like four bucks, five bucks, and we were selling them for $25, including delivery. <laughs> and if you wanted us to go buy a present for your kid, include the money plus 20 bucks for us to. So I was making my tuition delivering birthday cakes uh, when I was in school because I had the list. That's freaking genius. Yeah. So that was that my first really successful. I, I, when I was in high school, I found the company that made all the concert t-shirts and asked them if I could buy all the leftovers. So I would buy the ones for the tours that didn't sell. Because back in those days, you didn't have the internet to, to sell stuff. So they, they would, you know, they would send them out to discount stores and stuff. And then I would set up at, at flea markets and things like that and sell the t-shirts. I'd buy them for two bucks, sell them for 10, 15, make money. So I was always sort of in that, that entrepreneurial space of, of recognizing opportunities nobody else recognized. Nice. Um, yes, I've been at it forever. And I, I love it. It's fun. It's, it's, it's almost sport. Considering okay, I don't watch so any sport. This is the kind of person, people, that you need in your company to be able to see things you can't see because to you, it's a magic trick. To them, it's their fish breathing water and it's just what they do. And they'll see opportunities where you just possibly can't. And some of them to be able to implement are usually so easy that you're like, oh my God, why have I been banging my head against while trying so hard for so long when I could have just gone to Andrew if he was going to just go do this. This is your mojo. This is where your people are. Bam, let's go make music. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you and uh, find out more or do you jam, how do they do that? I'm right here. See? Can you see me? Oh, hey. Well, you can look here at, if you're watching the video. Um, our company's The Fangled Group. Fangled, like newfangled or old fangled, but we're just fangled. Group.com. You can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm the guy that has my name and my face that you'll find on there. And also we have an incredible podcast of our own called The Fangled Cast, where we do all sorts of really interesting interviews with interesting people uh, about topics that I think are interesting. How's that for an interesting? No, that was interesting. Something, there's something interesting about that. <laughs> and and other than that, you can you can tell X and fax me. <laughs> <laughs> Find them on uh, MySpace. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, AOL. Not yeah. <laughs> if you can find MySpace, no. you'll find actually yeah, we're, we're, we still have our, our site we're only available on CompuServe and Prodigy if you're old enough to know what the hell that is <laughs> but I do still have a Palm Pilot <laughs> sitting around in the garage somewhere do you? uh oh this I interview's over right? yeah, sorry. I had if I knew to that it. I wouldn't if I knew that we wouldn't be talking That's, <laughs> you crossed the line <laughs> awesome. so peeps go look up andrew at fangledgroup.com of course if you scroll down in the notes they're going to be there if you're driving right now and you can't remember newfangled old fangled you got something going on in your life but go to awarenessstrategies.com slash podcast or little blue pill for business slash podcast and you will find andrew's information there so awesome any last words for our peeps today before i let you get off I have no more words. I'm out. You promised me it was just yes and no questions. And now I'm a little disappointed. Well, you know, I make all sorts of promises and then I over deliver. It's just, yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I had a blast. It's been super fun. Thank you. This is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being with us here today. If you know anyone who would make a great guest for the show, or if you have a question or topic you'd like me to discuss, reach out to me at Michelle at the little blue pill for business.com or connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. 
Thank you for listening to the Little Blue Pill for Business podcast with your mistress in business, Michelle Nedelec. Why are you still here? Go to littlebluepillforbusiness.com and get your goodies. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to share it with somebody else that you know would enjoy getting it up in business after you subscribe to the podcast, of course, so you won't miss any future episodes. Now, check the notes for links. Oh, and only tell your wife if she's into this, you know, entrepreneurship. And I'll see you both on the other side.